So I would just say, just keep going. You know, that's the other piece. I know things are really tough right now. There's a lot of stress, anxiety, regret, and darkness in the world, but have faith in those macro trends. Even as the world sometimes moves in different places and it feels like it's not fair and it feels like it's dark and negative, trust and have faith in the universe that through time, have the patience, things will get better and things will be very positive for you. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Um, yes, my name is Arya Furman, uh, CEO and founder of Emergent Cognition. Um, we do custom software development and advisory for early stage startups and uh, R&D teams at enterprise organizations. We also have our own product development uh, function. We're building out um, collective consciousness products, both to help our own team succeed and execute, as well as um, helping folks with decision, anxiety, stress, and regret live a more fulfilled uh, and confident life. That's really awesome. When you when you say, um, what what are some typical firms that you advise, and and what does that look like um, on your end? Yeah. So um, there's, as far as names, I can't say of everything course. because yeah. of NDAs, um, but usually it's um, bigger players in the, um, mm -hmm. you know, we'll say just general like financial services, mm -hmm. banks. Um, loan management, mm -hmm. um, anything that has to do with, uh, uh -huh. you know, kind of institutional money, you know, yeah. we, we try to help build for, we've had a lot of big clients in, um, Europe, especially in Italy. Okay. Um, and we've done work with us based, um, financial services organizations as well, but mostly kind of bigger existing players that are looking for some help building out custom software, mm -hmm. um, and folks that are interested in getting into FinTech as well mm -hmm. that do more we'll call it legacy financial services. Yeah. So for our listeners, just for a bit of contextualization, uh, I met with Ari in San Francisco uh, about three or four months ago when we were going around and, and seeing uh, how we could best structure the club and a potential fintech workshop uh, that may still be in the works. Um, so you're an IU alum. What was it like when you were here? Uh, what are some of your fondest memories of your time, time at IU? Yeah. So, um, graduated in 2017. I had an amazing experience. I was born and raised in Silicon Valley, which I am uh, here today. Um, and so going from California to Indiana, I didn't know anybody there, uh, but somehow got paired with the one other California kid in the dorm. Um, I was an Eigenman. I don't know if it's still around these days. Of course. Um, and we, we, um, we hit it off really well, had an amazing, you know, kind of social experience. Um, and then the second semester of our freshman year, uh, we actually started a company. It was called The Block. And at the time, um, it was an alternative to the Greek system. So we were actually both in the Greek system, but we yeah. really felt like it wasn't as inclusive as it could have been. And it was a decentralized hosting and event management um, company. We ended up uh, merging with another organization, a startup at IU, and created something called Be There. And it was an event-based social networking platform. Um, we had some really big names signed onto our kind of label for putting on events. Mm -hmm. um, if you ever got, if you ever see the photo of the Chainsmokers, what is it? What was that very famous song that they had? Um, I can't it? remember what it was, but mm -hmm. 
it's called selfie is it called selfie i think selfie whatever it was one of of the chain smokers very early um you know coming up concerts was in bloomington Uh per our contract and you can see on like the cover of it is actually at the nightclub here in bloomington and that was part of our promotional activity so we had a bunch of really really cool experiences we built out a tech solution um we went out to silicon valley to do it and ultimately um didn't pan out it just wasn't financially viable and we went back to school but overall really really amazing experience and of course the basketball games and the social stuff and Uh i was in sigma pi um so anyways yeah really really amazing experience for me eric did something similar uh to that yeah and yeah with uh neutrality oh oh yeah (laughs) i mean yeah you built out an entire or you helped build out that entire partnership with post malone right uh, yeah, I mean, I was on the team for that. Yeah, I, I didn't head the entire thing, yeah. but um, I mean, it, it's similar, <laughs> I guess, to something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So what was what was SigPi like? Uh, they're still around. Eric was ta- we were talking with them really quickly about yeah. how uh, Eric bikes by them all the time still. <laughs> oh, good. I, someone told me they got kicked off campus. So I'm glad they're uh, they're around these days still. Um, <laughs> SigPi was fun. I, I really it was a group of people from every background, uh, California, Florida, New Jersey, you know, sometimes fraternities, sororities have a very deep, you know, I don't know, cultural or demographic, uh, allegiance, but it was just people that were wanting to have a good time and were genuinely good people. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Sigma Pi, I took over the, um, philanthropy chair, uh, role. And at the time we had like kind of a, it was called, it was like called the Sigma Pi smoke out. It was just kind of a, a small cookout thing. And um, with my partner, John Panos, um, and a bunch of really amazing people who helped volunteer, we took this thing that was like, I don't know, raising probably a couple thousand bucks a year. Mm -hmm. And we partnered with the warehouse in Bloomington, and we built out a um, fraternity and sorority boxing tournament (laughs) uh, for charity for the American Cancer Society. And we raised $100,000 over two years. It was, it probably still is my most proud accomplishment. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, you know, my mother had cancer and so it was very meaningful to me oh. and people loved it. You know, if there was like, I don't know, hopefully there's some jerseys or something floating around campus still, you know, with the uh, last man standing stuff on it. But yeah, it was just a really, really cool event. And, um, you know, Sigma Pi was, you know, the catalyst in order for us to be able to do that. So it was a really boxing tourney? organization. Yes. Like boxing, yep. MMA um, boxing. Um, not MMA. <laughs> it was traditional Western boxing, but it was full contact boxing. So oh the sororities and the fraternities trained for six months, um, at the warehouse, they have professional, uh, you know, boxing training there. You guys can <laughs> probably go there tomorrow and do it. I'm sure the, the, the folks are still around. Oh my gosh. And, uh, yeah, they had fights and, uh, we raised a bunch of money and people had a great time. So that seems like a, a pretty loaded thing from the university standpoint of, of risk and, and disclosures and signing, uh, signing a bunch of forms and whatnot. <laughs> well, so we wanted to do it in Dunmeadow uh-huh. and they said no, because they exactly what you're saying. And we actually wanted to call it like IU boxing tournament or something like that. But again, they didn't want the, the label of the university associated with it. So we had to do it off campus, but it was still Greek life sanctioned, I guess we'll call it. Um, so it wasn't IU as the university put on, but mm-hmm. through the Greek organizations, we were able to make it happen. Yeah. 
And you started this company at while you were at IU, and then you also did a summer analyst stint with J.P. Morgan. Uh, what were some some of that? What was that like, and and what what did you take away from that that little stint? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting these days because even a couple years um, feels like a generational shift. So I graduated in 2017. I can't remember exactly what the numbers looked like, but when I was a freshman, so I guess it would have been, I don't know, 2013, 2014. The informatics program was still, you know, relatively small compared to Kelly. I actually originally came to IU for Kelly, um, and then switched over to informatics. Mm -hmm. And by the time I graduated, and I don't quote me on this number, but I think it was something like the third biggest program. It was it was much much bigger than it was before. The informatics program used to be in the basement of these old frat houses, <laughs> and now, as you've seen, it's in this like very big beautiful building, which I have yet to see, and I'd love to come visit. Yeah. Um, so even seeing that evolution was quite interesting. And when I did my summer analyst program with JP Morgan, I was originally hired in as a technology analyst. So everybody, no matter what your technical background was a technology analyst mm -hmm. and there was no coding interview. There was like a kind of a blitz day where you have a few conversations. They reasonably see if you know about tech and you're, <laughs> and you're, uh, you know, smart enough. And they'll be like, Oh, you know, come on and we'll figure it out after. So I did the internship and after about a year in the full-time role which i accepted after that so i guess it was two years after maybe in 2019 everything switched to the software engineer program uh -huh. so everyone went from tech analyst if you were an engineer great that was nice to have but you could do whatever to engineering primarily and if you were a scrum master or something else that would have been a side thing and you had to do coding interviews and everything so it's really fascinating to even watch big Fortune 500 companies shift their entire outlook on what it means to be a technologist um, in that short period of time. I'm so jealous. Um, yeah. Because now, because I, I, I went to four rounds with a, with a quant firm and then they straight up told me that because you're a C, not a CS major, you, we, we don't want you. <laughs> so um, well, the world and, has changed. And, and yeah. now, now we do, we do all these coding interviews and, and things that just seem ridiculous. I mean, investment banking, recruiting is an entire different beast. And um, I've heard anecdotes from, from club members that there were times when they were straight up blown off by, by people in that industry. Um, so in a way, I am really jealous of, of the recruiting experience you seem to have had. <laughs> I mean, I heard yeah. some of these tech interviews, they, they now offer you personality tests. So they have you take yeah. a personality test before your first interview. <laughs> so you have to get the magisterian criteria before you even get to that stage. And for another interview, I had to do these, yeah. these brain tests for four hours straight um, <laughs> to even get a first round interview, which was really interesting, I thought. It's just really you know, overblown. I, not not to derail anything, but I, you know, so after, after JP Morgan, I worked at Bridgewater Associates, uh -huh. which was a wonderful experience. And uh, they do a lot of the psychometric testing as well. Mm -hmm. And part of that was the inspiration for the current product we're building, Humanetic. And, um, you know, I, I actually really believe in the personality testing, the psychometric testing. I think it's super valuable. If you can get it to be authentic, Yeah. there's nothing, you know, when you go through an interview process, you're basically vetting out somebody's values, abilities, and skills. Mm -hmm. And if you can get a concrete quantitative measure of that upfront, that's not the exclusive way to measure people, but it's just a data point I think is really, really good. So though they shouldn't make you sit through four hours of torture. Uh -huh. um, I think it was probably useful for the, for the process. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, I see papers written all the time that say a lot of those uh, psychometric analyses are are a load of garbage, and that they are just. I mean, I, I see 
academia can be biased in a lot of ways, but it shows over time that in terms of productivity and performance, they actually don't mean a whole lot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends if it's a one-time thing or it's reinforced with updating mechanisms through time. So at Bridgewater, we had internal tooling, um, and this is publicly available information. You can look this up. We had something called the doc collector, which allowed you to leave authentic feedback for people through time. Mm -hmm. So you get a baseline of your psychometric testing. Then every single day you were leaving yourself and others were leaving you feedback, which would then update your values, abilities, and skills as presented in the system. So I think there's, you know, maybe right now they're not as accurate as they should be, but in the future, I think they'll be really, really good. And I'll mention one other case. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Ad Astra, the movie before with Brad Pitt. I've, yeah. You've heard of it? Yeah. I, I think I've heard of it too. I don't think I've ever seen it. You guys should, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a sick movie. You should check it out. But there's a few times in the movie where Brad Pitt, before he goes on a mission, has this thing that's attached to his neck and he's speaking to it. And he's kind of saying, you know, I'm going to be focused on my mission today. My head is clear. Um, I'm not going to be distracted. And it's a psychometric test. It's mm -hmm. hearing the inflection in his voice, the words that he's saying, and then it approves his day of going out onto the spaceship or doing whatever he's going to do. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of look to that. I, I send my team that example a lot for, for the product we're building now. Like, can we get to this, right? Can we get to some place where, um, you know, daily, whatever we call cognitive coaching, psychometric testing uh -huh. is a key element of our ability to execute and think critically and, um, you know, I think it's actually gonna be really beneficial for everybody through time. No, that just sounds like manifestation. Honestly, <laughs> I can do this. You today. know, it's probably part a of it. Mission. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But it, do, do companies really struggle that much with recruiting? It seems like the amount of talent that, that has entered the workplace has gone up exponentially even since 2017, which is why we're seeing all these interviews get so much more challenging, especially at the summer analyst level. I, I would bet if you asked most um, directors or CEOs of organizations, what the number one challenge they have is, is hiring and firing. Mm -hmm. It's getting the right people in the right place to do the right activities. Yeah. Um, so yeah, ultimately I think it's the most important thing really mm -hmm. is like making sure that there's some tooling around that. And today, you know, I still believe the interview process is pretty flawed there's some stuff yes. that's making it a little bit better. Like, um, you know, some, some of this psychometric testing, I think that's a little bit more experiential, but even like greenhouse where you can submit independent feedback and it gets synthesized, you know, based on a number of attributes that you're looking for, for oh. a candidate, like that's kind of the baseline of where we're at. As far as my understanding, you know, when I was doing interviews at, um, at bigger companies. So, but yeah, I think it is quite important. So is the long-term play to, to build out something that, that solves these problems and have, you know, sell it as a platform as a service or software as a service? Exactly. So we have two parts of the business. One is the services part where we do the custom software development. We're doing a lot of AI stuff. It's both an amazing learning experience for the team um, and a way for us to keep the lights on, right? So it's, mm -hmm. we're making money. We, my team does an excellent job. Um, you know, we have about 40 people down in Cordoba, Argentina wow. um, in a physical office down there. Um, they're excellent engineers, excellent designers. You know, I know a lot of folks have done offshoring or nearshoring. Argentina, I can't recommend enough. It's about the same um, cost basis as India. Um, and I really, really admire the, um, 
university system that produces really creative, talented, both technical and you know design um, folks down there. Um, but yes, through time, the ultimate goal is to to help humanity. We want to change the world. Mm-hmm. We want to build a system that takes away the friction of making decisions and brings about um, a real collective consciousness, something that you mm-hmm. feel like you have a compass in your pocket for all your daily activities. Yeah. And not mm-hmm. something that's going to tell you what to do, that's going to be pushy about what you're doing, but asks you the right questions, that gives you visions for the future. I think mm-hmm. manifestation may even be the right kind of <laughs> analogy for this thing, where it's like, can I visualize the risks, costs, yeah. benefits, potential outcomes, decisions, how they link through time yeah. to give me the best possible version of my life. But I think through this and recruiting from the end customer standpoint, uh, me being the customer of this this recruiting, um, I, I hate higher views. And I know a lot of people around my age feel the same. And now we're using AI to review these higher views and using people's intonations of their voice and, and using all this data to, to determine from one from one little video if they're a good candidate or not i think that's ridiculous how I'm can you sorry. tell by someone's voice if they're a good candidate there, how does there that have even been work? papers written that really? that show charisma you can detect charisma in someone's voice using ai well, can't you, can you just be... fake charisma in your voice you yeah which is what people do i fake it right that's what i do that's what i do <laughs> you it's what you have to do especially when when these are being analyzed by ai and you have to think about ethics too when you when you do that right because it makes people feel dehumanized. There's mm-hmm. already a, a loneliness epidemic in the world because of social media. Mm-hmm. And uh, does that exacerbate it? I don't know. So Arya, when you're hiring, do you feel that in the VC space, it, it just the academic performance factor, that's just something that that's part of a checklist now and that what you're really looking for is someone that fits the culture of your firm? Because that's what I've heard from a lot of guest speakers we've had. Yeah, so I, I don't know about VC. If for my firm... Um, we use almost, yeah, everything we're doing today, right? So this is a software that we're building for the future mm-hmm. and it should be used for hiring and a bunch of other things, but it's not going to be explicitly like a, you know, voice uh, tonality thing yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. you know, be able to hire a fire. But yeah, for me, it's, you know, all of business is human. Yeah. Everything is human. Like, uh, and I, I agree and I see this in, you know, this might be a little bit of a hot take, but I see this out here with like kind of the, um, the accelerator culture, the startup culture, where everyone's trying to boil everything down to a number of variables, yes. create playbooks. Of course, you want to create systems for your business, and mm-hmm. I think there are best practices, but you cannot um, over-squeeze particular dots. You have to be able to zoom in and out. They, you know, kind of, they call it porpoising, right? Above and below the, the line of detail. Um, so... For me, I'm very human-oriented. I have yes. conversations with people. I get a sense for their values, abilities, and skills. Of course, if it's a technical thing, we'll have folks that are appropriate for that interview come in. Um, but we're not using, you know, uh, we'll call it the mo- the current rudimentary psychometric testing or yes. higher views or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, what yeah. are what are some of your opinions on, opinions on AI? Um, I mean, it's it's become so prevalent. If you mention AI any time in your pitch uh, to a VC, you're going to get funding at this point. That's a little bit overblown. But but AI is becoming so hot. Where does it get to the point where this is Tech Bubble 2.0? So um, I can just say I, I don't know if I can call, you know, if it's going to be a bubble or not. I can just tell you from my personal experience, I've seen people – 
include, you know, our team, startups that we're working with, building products for them, be extremely successful with AI. Mm -hmm. And these founders, um, and, and even projects we're doing for R&D purposes, but, you know, I'll just kind of focus on the startup thing, are actually usually non-technical. It's people that have worked in, a, in an industry for 15 years. They understand it deeply. They understand the problem. Now they have this inclination of AI, what it could possibly do. And then they come to some other service like ours or whatever and say, hey, can you put these two ideas together? Yeah. And in that sense, the AI is doing a very particular calculation or set of calculations. You're using different AI services together in order to produce an expected outcome. Uh -huh. I think those are really, really great use cases. Um, ones that are kind of tar pits. And we talk about tar pits, it's um, getting stuck in the tar and not getting out and then your business dies basically. Yeah is um, saying, okay, I've worked in technology for 10 years. Now I want to keep chasing the next edgy thing. It seems like AI is a hammer. Let's go find a nail to smack it with. <laughs> and those people will just stick on the wrong use case over and over and again, trying to adapt, trying to update, which is admirable. I, I appreciate the courage and I appreciate the tenacity, mm -hmm. but it's you know, trying to do something again with the hammer, finding the nail versus saying, I have this clear problem where the AI is going to do a particular calculation and then produce a result for me. Yeah. So I think if we focus on that first thing, AI is going to do wonders. And of course, I don't know what open yeah. AI is going to produce in two years and that might change yeah. everything, but that's what I've seen thus far. Yeah, and we've heard from past guests that there have been a lot of so-called tourists in VC and 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 startup land uh, in AI. It's people who don't actually care about it, and they just want the check from from VCs because it's a hot mm -hmm. thing now, and and I can come here and, and build something that's marginally better than a current uh, solution. But I don't actually have the passion behind it that that is needed for for being a true founder. Right. Right. So, with that being said, did you have something to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, oh, I mean, it doesn't that go th with everything though? Like what you're saying about the passion behind it's, being a founder. It's just become easier to not have the passion because the, yeah. it was so easy to get money. Well, I mean, money if you think of free. any business model, right? The whole online business mm -hmm. realm that exists today, that how that emerged, and so it, it it gained a lot of popularity throughout 2022 and this year. No one has the passion for it. They just think they're going to make money off of it. And you're saying it's the same thing with VC. Well, I mean, it's not VC. It's people who go to VCs to get checks for their for their AI startup. There, I mean, there's AI startups a dime a dozen, right? Yeah. But there's AI startups that are going to be successful. So, would you classify them as the same people that want to start drop shipping or want to do things like that? I mean, I I can't speak to drop shipping specifically, yeah. but I I think drop shipping is very saturated now. Absolutely, very saturated, and it's uh, it's why places like China are starting to enter a bubble. Um, because a lot of those firms just pull pull product from China and they sell it to the U.S. where there's a, a higher marginal propensity to consume. That's so it's the it same thing with VC of how people it, – it's getting more saturated because it's the new hot thing as well? I don't know if VC is hot, and, and Ari could probably talk to this specifically, but um, there, there are a lot more VCs out there now. And it's because um, VC – there's been papers written on it that that VC earns a very high rate of return. It's a higher rate of return than uh, equity markets. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, you need to be an accredited investor to uh, actually invest in, in a VC fund. So it's something that in the past has been limited to people who are millionaires. 
COVID created a lot more millionaires. And that's my take on why there's a lot more VCs out there. Yeah. So I think two points, one on the drop shipping versus more risky venture. I mean, drop shipping is an established systematized business, mm -hmm. you know, it, and I think it's more like, it's like opening a, you know, ice cream shop. Like we're here, this is a cash flow business. We know, we know, we know what we're doing. Um, on the other side is more of an enterprise value business and it's a much deeper long shot. And mm -hmm. so you're going to get a ton of, you know, call it the one in 100, that's going to be a billion dollar business. And then the rest are going to fall out. Yeah. So if you're, you know, trying to raise money systematically on something that's, you know, by definition, very risky, it's a little bit of a different model. Yeah. Um, and, and that might account for some of that sentiment, James, that you're, that you're feeling. Yeah. Um, on the VC thing, yeah, I mean, yes, there was a lot more money over the past couple of years, and VCs hired a lot of people that were new to VC. So when I was um, I was raising money, you know, I guess uh, what was it last year now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was talking to a lot of early stage folks. You know, people that were, you know, even as I was making my way through the conversations, they were fairly new to to venture capital, and I think a lot of um, firms and and people that are new to the space. They, they're probably extremely talented, but they haven't seen all the ups and downs. They haven't been in it for a decade. Uh, so yeah, I think it is just growing and I don't have all the answers there, but um, there's definitely a set of new people in venture that um, are just still kind of learning the ropes. Um, and as a result, yeah, it just swelled as an yeah. industry and you know, we'll see what happens. Hey, but so. I, I see so much more supply of potential ventures as well coming down the pipeline. Because there are so many people around my age that are sick of working for big firms. Big firms don't really represent what we value. I mean, your your identity is lost if you work for a big firm. It, it's not every big firm, but a lot of big firms, you will be forced to be what we call a corporate slave. I mean, you will be chained down to a desk and you'll be told to do certain things uh, just like you were in, in elementary, middle school, high school and college. And you will have virtually limited creativity at the junior level. And a lot of people don't feel that that's what represents who they are as a person. There's more of an emphasis on individuality, I think. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say two things. Yeah. The first one is going to be um, a little controversial and then I'll, I'll close it out with the second sure. thing. Um, it can be a very, um, your, your, your work can be a very important part of your identity and it can bring you a lot of meaning as somebody who has gone through the struggle, who's, tr you know, spun up different elements of the business, spun down certain elements of the business, mm -hmm. been through the fire over the past X number of years. I can tell you it is a extraordinarily rewarding path, but it's also really painful and very difficult. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't make it. And, um, if there's ways to value both the corporate experience and the non-corporate experience, I think it's important. And if you can find meaning in your life, if you can find a way to create your identity outside of your job, having a consistent paycheck, having health insurance, having all this stuff is really, really incredible, um, especially these days. So I'll just say everything comes with a cost. Everything comes with a risk. And I think for me, of course, I love the entrepreneurial route. This is what I've dedicated my life to. And I would encourage anyone who feels strongly, don't do it if you even have a small inclination. 
only do it if in your soul you are, it says, I cannot live without doing this, yes. do it. If anything less than that, find meaning some other way, do some side projects, be an advocate in your community, uh, do stuff in civil service. There's so many amazing ways that you can create an identity. And I hope people just expand the aperture of possibility beyond, you know, hey, I can build a tech startup. Yeah. So. Yeah, so James, I, I think I had the absolute opposite take from what you're saying. Uh -huh. Because I, I've seen so many people that when they when when they work a corporate job, yeah, mm -hmm. everyone hates it, right? But let's say they're working a job in a manufacturing plant, they have the same hours. They're working those 14-hour days, no AC, whatever, right? Yeah. And a lot of people actually in law, they say that when they get to something where they're working 70 hours a week because they have a point of reference, then their longevity in something like big law is is something that they can maintain because they know that it's the lesser of two evils they know that that job like all, all jobs suck and that's just the the jobs in general but mm -hmm. it's more about how you have the experience in something you know you don't like but then you look at the benefits of something else where you work in the same hours except you're in ac you know you're working yeah. you're making good wage you know and then that's that's how pe most people think i think when they get to their late 20s Arya, correct me if i'm wrong on this but i'm gonna know. i want to push back a little bit before before he answers yeah. that um I, I i don't think hours matter at all i think it's just the notion that you are you do not have free will when you are you are you are virtually owned by your employer when you are you are on their premises. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone in our generation thinks that they want to be an entrepreneur, right? That's the that's the new yeah. hot thing. Yeah. But I think that that's a stray from reality because mm -hmm. I think the nine to five is something that should be normalized. It, but at the same time, there yeah. are people out there who have passions should not chain themselves down. Mm -hmm. You should follow your passion. Well, what happens if the passion doesn't work? Like there is only, I think there's 19 oh. out of 100 VCs that make it. I think that, that that's the statistic. I, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I mean, yeah, that's probably a true yeah. statistic. But at the same time, you, you should follow what you truly believe. You should have, if you have that fire in you, like you said, go yeah. follow it. Right. So you have to, yeah. <laughs> there's no other option. Yeah. If, if you don't, it'll eat you inside. You know, I felt for years I had to do it. Um, and I was still learning things and I'm glad I got the experiences I did, but yeah, whatever it is, you know, whatever your passion is, whether it's a tech startup or, you know, working, I, I think civil service is a huge thing. People miss working mm -hmm. in government, doing things mm -hmm. to help build things for your community. Like yeah. go do it, live. That's also a big part of humanetic. That's what we're trying to build is helping people make value-based decisions, understanding themselves and actualizing their potential, right? It's such a shame to have this thing in your heart your whole life and never doing it because you're afraid. Mm -hmm. You have an obligation, almost a divine, you know, universe requiring obligation to yes. do what you're meant to do in this place. You have to, yes. you know, and if you don't feel that way, mm -hmm. you know, do drop shipping, right? Like that's the thing, <laughs> like do something that works. But, yeah. you know, if you do, it's very important. Yeah, so. but what I'm saying is that I think the opposition to that argument is you're saying that, you know, for years you had that mental grit where you worked on the business and that's the only reason why you said you were successful. I know so many people in the social media marketing agency space that they have a real passion for that. They love running ads for local businesses and helping them double their client acquisitions. But finding that loophole, that competitive advantage, it took them five, seven years and it was only because they failed that many times and for that long that they were able to find that loophole. So what do you say to people that don't want to 
stick it out for five to seven years? What happens to the people that quit six years in and they only needed to stay in for one more year? Mm -hmm. How exactly do you respond to that? Because there's so many people, especially I think on the older side that are going to say that you got to be realistic with something like that. Yeah. I, I think it's super fair. And I, and I acknowledge, um, my position in life. I don't have children. I don't have a wife. I don't have, um, financial obligations right now that require yeah. me to need to do other things. So for me to be able to make this sacrifice, I'm, I'm only responsible to myself. And so I'm willing to do that for me. And I was willing to just do it as long as it takes. Um, but again, I, I recognize my position. And if you do have other, having a family is the best thing you could ever do. You know, mm -hmm. like yeah. if you can have a family and, and work a great job and come home and be in a loving environment and coach, you know, like do that. You know what I mean? Like that, like that's awesome. And I, I've just, I think it's all like, where's your position in life? What are your circumstances? And, and everything's a cost benefit trade-off. Right. And it's like, yeah. you know, that, that's why I think a lot of people create this idealism around entrepreneurship where it might just not be appropriate for you. It's the same person that goes to, I think you were talking about a big law firm and burns out or something. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think it's romanticization. This, it's romanticization. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I just feel for people who, who know that they have something that they really care about deeply, but are still chained down to a, a desk at a, a, a large firm because they, they need to make ends meet. And I think it's a symptom of uh, America at large is that we we are pretty laissez-faire when it comes to supporting society um, when when they need it. Yeah, I think that the whole realm of entrepreneurship, it's really become popularized because of social media. If you if you get mm -hmm. rid of social media from that equation, yeah. I don't think that entrepreneurship and VC in general is yeah. as popular as it has become. Like, I don't know if you've seen that guy on Instagram, he's, he's blown up for normalizing the nine to five mentality. All his videos are about that. Wow. And because he, he makes videos about the nine to five mentality, he's escaping the nine to five. So there's an irony in that. I, because yeah. He's making money off of making videos, vlogging his nine to five life. <laughs> Which is I think there's one other very important element to this yeah. is um, there's a very big inclination for people these days to um, and I think rightfully so. And we live in a society that rewards independence. You know, we yes. all have independent freedoms. We work for ourselves. But I think everyone is not, I don't want to say everyone. Many people are fighting just for their own benefit. Yes. And I think, you know, for me, I'll tell you personally, you know, I believe that God asked me to do this. I, I believe that I had some divine purpose in life that even if my business didn't go well for whatever reason, I had to come here and pull these levers and make the universe work in this way for the greater good. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, where can I max out my money? Where can I max out my happiness? And I think part of the equation that's missed is where can I max out the greater good? Where can I max out my purpose in this universe? And, you know, whether that is sitting at that desk, I you know, that. and whether you could have been the greatest CEO, but you have this family at home and you're supporting them. And that's what the universe is asking of you. I think that's a, a huge piece of the equation that's missed. So I definitely have a follow-up question to that. 
since you're saying that, I, I really want to, I really wonder about this. Do you, do you believe in the concept of predestination that everything in your life when you're born is pre-planned for you, that you are, you are set, you are given a purpose at the beginning of your life. And then over time you start to realize what that is. But do you think, do you, do you think that's true? Or do you think that you make your own reality? So I believe that and not because of anything that I've done, but because of the way that God has created the world, Mm -hmm. that I'm the co-author of my life with God. Mm -hmm. And so I was created with a soul inside of me that won't change. That was the way I started. It'll be the way until I die. And that is a part of the infinite universe of things. In this finite place that we're living are my thoughts, my emotions, and my physical feelings and, and my body. Those things can change with the wind, right? Those are things that can come up and down and move and whatever. And hopefully they don't do too much to inform how I perceive myself and my mission here. But in some ways they will, right? That's how you take feedback from reality. You create some narrative in your head and then you're kind of co-authoring with the universe of what you want to do next. So I don't believe that everything has shaped itself in you know small detail through the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But I do believe there is a lot of consistency. I do believe the universe is a lot more powerful than me. Yeah. And I'll tell you, honestly, it was only when I came to that realization where I realized that I was being arrogant for the first 28 years of my life to believe that I was in control of my destiny and completeness. Only once I created humility within myself and I am just starting on this path that I was able to be successful in my business. I was failing in my business until I was able to humble myself and say, there's a lot that's out of my control. What can I do to benefit the greater good? And everything changed from that moment. There are so many guests that have said the exact same thing. And it's uh, that, that business is largely about killing your own ego. Um, and, and I think that that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I think it's something that a lot of IU students struggle with. Um, just based on my interactions with some people. And I myself have, have struggled with it too, so it's not an attack on anyone. But but when you're young and ambitious, you feel like you have everything under control. And to a, a certain extent, that's the truth. If I didn't turn on my computer this morning, um, we would not be doing a podcast episode with you that could be listened to by thousands of people potentially and, and, uh, and spread around the world, right? But at the same time, I don't control if that actually happens. So it's a weird conundrum where I do have control over the potential of this thing, but I don't have control over its ultimate destiny, if you know what I mean. So James, I ask you, since you're really interested in starting a startup, do you think that your purpose in life, that when you were born, like what you're given is to to create a startup that impacts the world? I I just don't see myself. I, I, I have a rebellious attitude. Yeah. I, I don't see myself I think most um, of us do. being able yeah. to to sit down um, and do things that I that I know are wrong. Um, things that have happened at, at companies, not not to name drop, but I am regardless. Uh, things that have happened at companies like Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. where you have very poor decisions being made and people just blindly following along with it for a paycheck. Mm-hmm. I could never see myself doing that. And that has innately led myself to uh, doing something for the greater good as well. That's why I started FinTech at IU, because there's no way to connect finance and computer science students. Yeah, It's a five-year degree program to double major in finance and computer science. It makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're a Kelly student, you're looked at as this, this big egotistical person. 
right? And if you're a CS student, there's jokes made about you that you're, oh, you don't wear deodorant, right? <laughs> but, but I mean, yeah. it's so far from the truth because yeah. it's a great interplay between two, two people or two different majors that come from very different walks of life. And finance now is so much similar to computer science. Finance is computer science now. And it's a shame that that there was nothing before fintech at IU started mm-hmm. that bridges that gap. That's what I care about. Isn't that how the world works, though? Like things like Wells Fargo, that's going to happen. That's inevitable. It's going to happen again, right? Yeah. I mean, you can even start off by saying you want to help the world. Like if you look mm-hmm. at Theranos, Elizabeth yeah. Holmes did the same thing. But then over yeah. time, as you get further into the business, then you start doing things to protect yourself. Yeah, and we can talk about um, Facebook and Meta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg definitely had good intentions in mind. When He's he helped started. the world. You yes. can argue that. He yeah. definitely has. But now we're devolving into a place where Instagram is yeah. now being sued by 43 states mm-hmm. because of the extreme negative impact it's having on people's lives. If you look at the average screen time that was released by Apple for people in Gen Z, it was over eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. People are spending over eight hours a day on their phone. Yeah. How is that? How is that healthy? It's the these firms are now hiring psychiatrists and psychologists to make their apps purposefully addictive and purposefully increase the amount of time people are spending on them. And I fear that that things are gonna devolve. Um, AI being the next shoe to drop potentially. I, I actually, I did, a, I did a research study on how fast food chains, they go and, and make, they hire people in chem labs that are chemistry majors to make their food more addictive yeah. by testing ingredients in different labs. That's what MSG is. Yeah, but the thing <laughs> is, in that, in that argument, there are so many people, right, that want to be whistleblowers that want to say, you know what, I don't, I don't want this to happen. And then they try to start an initiative yeah. to make sure it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that if you're working, for example, within McDonald's, and then you say, you know what, I want to I want to start a campaign to make sure that we are not making it more addictive because fast food is unhealthy. You can't do that no. because it hurts the company. Of course. So yeah. how are you how are you going to solve that problem? How are you going to solve the problem that all these fast food chains, their their main goal is to make their products more addictive so that they profit more. Uh-huh. How are you going to solve that problem? How are you going to yeah. solve that issue on your own? Well, and, and from an expected value standpoint, if I'm a whistleblower, yeah. right, what's the best thing that could happen to me? There's a slim chance that I could become really famous. I could become the next Edward Snowden. Probably not for for releasing information about how fast food chains have have shitty practices, right? What's the worst thing that could happen to me? I can be exiled to Russia, and I can live a terrible life because the, the U.S. government wants me dead, right? Yeah. That's, uh, like, do you, you no want to do that to yourself? Like a lot of people want to pursue good, but it's to a limit. Yeah. It's yeah. to a limit. It's always to a limit. Yeah. Which is a shame. I imagine if you want to be a whistleblower in the mob or something, man, you, you get shot. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So how do you approach something like that? How do you solve an issue like that? It's uh, If you it's, really want to see good in the world, that's my question. I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that. Aria, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's um, there's like two levels to it. One is that I have faith through time that life is cyclical and big, whatever it is, an organization, a tree, uh, any type of living collective being, um, when it gets too big for itself, 
it will eventually rot and it will eventually die out. Mm -hmm. And that's the cycle of life. And something new and beautiful will grow from that, from that old thing into something that's new in a beginning. And, um, so I think the baseline is having a positive outlook, right? Like that's, it's just like, I know the cycle of life. We've been around for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Through time, we have proven that positivity wins out. And so we can have faith in the goodness. And then when you boil it down, yes, to the trade-offs of my corporate you know, thing or the, my physical safety, it doesn't always mean that you have to take a particular set of actions, right? Mm-hmm. Edward Snowden, yes, maybe he has a very, very difficult life right now, but he's Edward Snowden. You know, he did it and he's an inspiration for people all over. And even if he dies tomorrow, he's done some incredible, incredible stuff. It's almost like his work, his little life's worth way more than mm-hmm. I've was, ever even thought I could. There's people who think of, Snowden's you know? a devil, but, but yeah, sure. I digress, right. I digress. You know, but yeah, it depends how you slice, slice the pie. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, the point being is you don't have to make such a tactical trade-off. You can have, once you start to relax a little bit and have faith that goodness is going to win out through time it allows you to have patience. It allows you to be able to get more creative and cross pollinate. And I know this is very loose language, but the point being mm-hmm. is for every situation, I think there's a lot of ways to bring goodness uh-huh. and you just got to feel it out and observe and stay patient. And so, yeah, it doesn't mean you have to go like, you know, snitch on the mob boss tomorrow. <laughs> but it means yeah, that you yeah. can be yeah. a light in a place that is full of darkness mm-hmm. in whatever way is appropriate for you in that moment. Yeah, I definitely think there's a hopeful persona behind that. But I I also feel there's a lose-lose situation in that because, you know, I'm studying film right now, right? I'm a cinema minor. And one of the things that, you know, I studied right before I went into that minor was that if you ever if you've ever looked at the the ending scene in Wolf of Wall Street where the FBI agent has solved the case, he's put Jordan Belfort behind bars and he's and he's on the subway. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it's at the end of the movie five minutes before the ending scene, right? So if you ever look at that, there's a parallel there because if you if you look at him, he's all miserable. He's sitting there. He's alone, right? Mm-hmm. And he's looking at the old couple that's in front of him. And people in, in cinema, they say that that is where he sees his future. He sees his his what what's going to become of him, even though he did the right thing. And then when you cut two minutes later in the movie and you see Jordan Belfort revered when he comes out of prison and he's he's at the ending scene where he's going up to people at that sales pitch where he's saying, sell me this pen. He's still revered. He is still he's still someone that people respect despite all of the, the fucked up shit he's done. So if you look at that and you look at the whistleblower FBI agent who's making 60 grand a year during the time and he has no potential upside, mm-hmm. why why do people pursue something good when in reality it could all turn bad? What if that's OK, though? Like, what if that's fine? What if that that outcome for both players in this grand scheme that we have, which we call life, is their appropriate outcome? Mm-hmm. And just because you make X amount of money or you have some bigger thing, whatever it is, mm-hmm. in my view, that doesn't mean that you've accomplished your purpose here. It doesn't mean that you're actually having the best outcome. We don't know what each person's purpose is here, what they have to be doing on this earth to be able to fulfill it. But just because you have a, I don't remember exactly the scene, but whatever it is, a wife and a small family in an apartment in New York. And it's like, maybe he ends up being a lot better off than Jordan Belfort, whether he's revered or has his yacht or whatever it is. And let's say he is happier, Jordan <laughs> Belfort, right? Okay, so be it, right? Like, that's okay. Like, maybe that's what he's meant to be doing here in this life. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just very important to always pull yourself out to the higher mm-hmm. level. Yeah. Recognize there's a lot of the dynamics of this place that we 
just don't understand. And if you can have faith and trust in that, life becomes a lot more clear and just becomes better overall for what it's worth. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. There's a very famous psychologist that I follow. Um, and um, one of the things that, that he really purports is this idea of being experience rich versus being possession rich. And there have been philosophers through time and time and time that have shown that becoming experience rich, meaning that you have went out into the world and experienced a vast multitude of different things, is so much more conducive to happiness than having material possessions. Because where does material possessions end? It's infinite. I can ask for more and more and more and more constantly. But once I experience things, that makes my mind over time converge onto what it truly believes, right? Because I've went and experienced things in so many different contexts that I get to a point where my mind understands the world from the broader lens, finally. I don't just understand the world from Bloomington, Indiana. I understand how people work. And I understand how the world as a whole functions. And I think that, just to echo something that Dr. K also says, who's a psychiatrist I follow, he says that for the longest time in, in humanity, we prioritized uh, just survival, right? We were hunter-gatherers. Uh, we, we had to make our own shelter. We had to make our own fire. But now we have gotten to a point where survival is easy. It's fundamentally easy to survive and stay alive. But through that process, we have lost hope. And I think that this is something that a lot of young people struggle with. Uh, and I love the point that he makes in saying that hope is sparse nowadays. We see all these things going on in the world. Uh, we see what's going on in the Middle East. We see a recession coming for the second time in, in many, of our life, uh, many of our lifetimes. So what are your thoughts on, on, on that take? On hope and the, and the lack of it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of world events that have happened, and I, I kind of the bigger generation over the past 20 years mm -hmm. that um, are part of the grand cycle of life. And Ray Dalio actually does a really incredible job of looking at these macro trends. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'd really recommend reading his work. Um, but, and, you know, the other piece, yeah, so there's like general you know, physical things that are happening in the world that are out of your control and can bring darkness and light and they're part of cycles of life. And that that's just a thing we have to accept. But then I also think touching back to the point we made before, if you are only for yourself, you're for nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone's sitting on Instagram wanting, you know, some, uh, this new purse or like, <laughs> you know, wanting to accumulate money or like, land some you know job to be able to say to themselves i'm where i you know i'm a man or i'm worth it or you know whatever it is like these are all things that are such small activities it's just it's just not worth much and so when you when you look at it through that lens and it's not such a philosophical thing where it's like oh you have to give up all your possessions it's just like what are you fighting for right mm -hmm. what where would you even place that hope hope for myself you know, there's things that are going to happen all the time. I'm subject to the macro cycles. If I'm only hoping in myself, of course, I'm going to be a sad person or anxious or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But if I'm 
hoping for a grander scheme. That's why, you know, having a family or, or living for something bigger than yourself by the nature of it will give you hope, mm-hmm. right? That you, you're living and you're looking at it, you're creating humility in yourself. That is going to, it's a key, I think, requirement in, in hope. Otherwise you're going to get flung around by the universe and the macro trends. And of course, we've had a lot of significant ones over the past 20 years, but <sighs> I think if people were living for something a little bit different, and I'm sure social media and all these other things, there are cultural elements are impacting us, um, you know, w- would really help people have that hope and bring light into the universe here. I think that's such a beautiful note to end on. Uh, and we ask this question to every single guest that we bring on. Um, I just ask if you could maybe hearken back to your days in college once again, and if you could give a current college student one piece of actionable advice that they could put in right now, this very instant, today, um, that would put them in a very awesome place in the next five to 10 years, what would that piece of advice be? So the number one thing I'd say is, and this is, I guess, continuing on the message that I've been, you know, kind of talking about through this whole conversation is do something for somebody else. And I know you have a lot on your plate and you are just, some people are living on their own for the first time Mm -hmm. and you're learning what it means to be an adult and you're joining social clubs and you're fighting for good grades and you have all this stuff. And of course, you know, just like on the airplane, put your mask on before you put it on somebody else. But um, as much as you can, whenever you have some moment of brevity of safety, of the ability, feeling like, okay, my grades are okay. I have food on my plate. I'm doing okay. You know, what can I do for somebody else? Yeah. Please, please do your best. And I know when I was in school, I didn't do enough of that. And I really wish I did. I was too focused on the social scene, focused on what I was going to do next, what was going to benefit me. And um, I would just really try to emphasize what you can do for others. And the last thing I'll say, when I was a freshman at IU, pledging. I was doing a lot of stuff. I didn't take my school seriously and I got very poor grades. And I went into something called the Phoenix program. I don't know if you guys still have this here. Uh, It's if you get poor grades at IU, you can, you can kind of rehabilitate your, your, uh, your academic uh, um, status at the school. And it was a big wake up call for me. And um, that was when I started the company. That was when I you know, did this philanthropy, did all these other things, worked with the IFC philanthropies, did all the, everything I could to max out my impact. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say, just keep going. You know, that's the other piece. I know things are really tough right now. There's a lot of stress, anxiety, regret, and darkness in the world, but have faith in those macro trends. Even as the world sometimes moves in different places and it feels like it's not fair and it feels like it's dark and negative, trust and have faith in the universe that through time, have the patience things will get better and things will be very positive for you. Yeah, I think finding your purpose is definitely a great note to end on. I, I know that there, there's actually a, lot, a couple of people in the dorm I'm staying at who have dropped out within the first eight weeks. They're out of college. Wow. They're just, they're living at home now because they were not able to manage everything. And, and I think that being able to say you never want to get comfortable and keep and keep on pushing, I think that's very, very influential. What do you think, James? My roommate always says... Um, this quote that's that's resonated with me and it is uh, pray not for easier tasks but pray that you have the strength to meet any task that's in the LSAT book I was 
really? studying. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, nice. Yeah. I really like that. Well, I think that's going to be it for episode 10 of the FinTech at IU podcast. Ari, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to the IU Media School for letting us use their spaces today. Uh, and thank you to Drs. Monaco and Dr. Dalkalich as well for their continued support uh, in bringing this club to where it is today. Uh, have a good day, everyone. Once again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening in.